Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for your love. It's so fascinating that we're gathered here on Valentine's Day, the day of love. Uh, Lord, your love. It's your love that never fails us. It's your love that remains. It's you that remains. It's rooted in you. We only love because you loved us first. It is your love. You are at the root of all love. You are love. Thank you. Guide us in that way today, Lord. Amen. Awesome. Well, you can, <laughs> it's great. Well, why don't you greet someone next to you and, uh, and then have a seat. Well, that was kind of fun. Uh, Aaron, Aaron Jones, who is our worship director in Clinton Township, he just happened to walk in the auditorium as we were rehearsing. And Jalen says, hey, come lead this song. And so he's like, okay. And he gets up there and does that. And I'm like, yes, I love this place. It's awesome. Uh, thank you, Lord. Uh, it's so much fun. Well, we're grateful that you're here. Like I said, it is Valentine's Day. It's also, more importantly, Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of this Lenten season. Uh, I don't know. I'm just curious. Is there anyone today that went and got ashes on their forehead? Anyone at all? Oh, look at you. I work at a Catholic school. <laughs> oh, you have a good voice, too. Wow. Are you a teacher or something? Are you? I work out at Catholic school. You know, that was beautiful. That was awesome. Thank you. That was so good. Uh, well, it, one of our volunteers came in and, and I looked at him. I said, you did that today. That's great. Well, I grew up in that tradition. And uh, just, you know, just so you know, it's, it really is beautiful. I read a blog this past week by a professor out in Fuller Seminary. And he just really took, us, took me at least to a place of remembering what today is about. And really what this season is about. And so we're going to talk a little bit that at the end. This idea that we were made from dust and we will go back to dust. So we have to understand our humanness. But how God has elevated us and we have so much hope in it. In him. And so we want to go through this season together in a study. Uh, so we're going to invite you to do that with us. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit about that at the end. Well, tonight we have a special guest with us. And as I'm calling him up, uh, I'm going to invite the ushers down when you're ready. Uh, we'd like to receive our offering. Uh, and so whenever you're ready to do that, if you've come prepared uh, to give, thank you. And we do that out of a, uh, an act of worship. So thank you for that. Uh, if you're brand new here, this doesn't have to be your moment at all. If you'd like to participate, great. Hey, I didn't call you up yet. You're not allowed to come up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but hey, no, give Cliff Johnson a big hand. This guy. Come on up here. Um, so Cliff, as you, as you may or may not know, is our lead pastor at the Birmingham campus. Uh, he is one of my heroes here. Uh, if you don't know Cliff, uh, you have to know that he loves Scripture. Just absolutely lives it and breathes it and loves it. And so when I walk by your office, his office is filled with books and scripture. And it's so great. Uh, we love you. So I'm going to pray for you. And then you're going to lead us into uh, Philippians 2, which is probably my favorite chapter uh, in scripture. Thank you, Lord, for this man. Thank you for Angela and the kids. Thank you for this family. He has been an absolute friend and a blessing to me personally and a gift to this church. And so we thank you, Lord, uh, that he is going to lead us, teaching us of your word and your word is perfect beautiful and powerful and so i ask lord that you let your words be his words and we're led in a way everlasting thank you father amen 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 thanks buddy thank you wow uh 
Danny, I appreciate you inviting me to be here. What an incredible team you have here at this campus. With Danny and with Andrew Kim and Nancy and all that, that serve here, it's, pretty, it's a pretty phenomenal crew for sure. Um, so I've enjoyed getting to know them. And uh, so I, I want to bring you a couple. I did a couple midweeks here over the last uh, two years. I will have been at Kensington Two, I'm like one month away from being here for two years, which is crazy to me. Um, I don't know if that means anything to anyone else, but for me, I'm like, wow, it's gone by fast, which I think is a good thing. I think when time goes by fast, it's good, right? That's usually nice. Okay. Um, so been here almost two years. Absolutely love it here. Um, but, but a couple of things I want to talk about. Number one, it's Valentine's Day, as it's already been said. Uh, and my date is here. This is my wife, Angela. I want to say hi to everybody. She's incredible and amazing. But I'm just going to jump right into this. A few years ago, uh, for Valentine's Day, before we had children, actually in a very difficult season for us where we were kind of wanting children, but it wasn't really happening, and we were sort of at the front end of what ended up being a nine-year journey of infertility and, and different things, and a real heartbreak for us. But I was a youth pastor at a church in Minnesota, and uh, on Valentine's Day, I figured out the date, it was Valentine's Day, of probably 2003, I think, my wife pulled up to the church where I was working, and she said, all right, get in the car. I've got everything packed. I'm taking you on a surprise getaway. And so we get in the car, and I'm like, wow, where are we going? She's like, don't worry about it. So we're driving. Now, we live in Minneapolis area of Minnesota, which is just flat out cold, like all winter long. Now, you know how the blue skies the last couple days made it not feel as cold? You're like, oh, that's, that's Minnesota. You kind of survived there because a lot of blue skies with like five degrees, but it was freezing. And she starts driving straight north into northern Minnesota as we're going up. I'm like, man, this is really far away. Where are we going? I'm starting to ask her some questions and I'm starting to notice some like billboards on the way of like this really big like resort area where they're advertising like snowmobiles and all these other things. I'm like, Surely you aren't taking me to a place where we go outside in this 20, it was 20 below zero uh, at that point uh, on that day. I'm like, are we going there? She's like, maybe. And so we pull in and uh, we we go to this resort and we're kind of unpacking our stuff. And she's like, okay, at at two o'clock, we've got, I've rented a snowmobile for us to jump on and we're going to go into the woods and we're going to, I'm like, okay, I don't know if you don't know who I am, but I'm not really outdoorsy. Uh, I'll watch a movie about snowmobiling or like the X Games, but man, to actually do it is interesting. So, so we go down to like the pro shop, which exists for snowmobiles and we go down there and like, I'm literally wearing a pair of like mom gap jeans, basically, like just a pair of jeans, like just, I was sitting at work on like a Tuesday, you know what I mean? I wasn't really ready for this adventure. And so I'm just wearing like regular jeans and like a shirt and I've got uh, isotoner gloves. Remember those? (laughs) Not exactly designed for the tundra of Northern Minnesota. Like Dan Marino wore those. They're for like driving a nice car, not waterproof at all. Like you spill your coffee on them, you have to throw them away. I mean, so that's what I'm wearing. And so we go to the pro shop and for some reason now we're like very cost conscious about what we're going to do on this trip. And so we're like, oh, we don't need, I'm like, I don't need snow pants. I'm fine. Just jeans are great. And I'm wearing like dress boots, like not snow boots at all. Like, like Timberlands, but not the good ones. Like the ones that are like chuckas, you know what I mean? With like two laces. I've got like low, low socks. Like my ankles are definitely ready to get frostbite. And so Angela's like, well, I need something. So she rents like the full snow bib outfit. And girls, I don't know what you do in this moment, but the guy who's like outfitting us looks at her. He's like, you're a medium, right? And she's like, uh-huh. 
She probably wasn't a medium on that particular day when she would tell you that. Uh, she, that might have been a little bit tight, but she didn't want to admit that maybe that wasn't her size. And so I'm trying to help her get into the medium. And I'm like stepping on her like an overstuffed suitcase trying to zip this thing up all around her. And, uh, but it made it more difficult because the first thing she did when we got there was put her helmet on. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm like, babe, it's too tight. She's like, what? I can't hear you. I'm like, take off the flipping helmet. We're inside the pro shop. I should have known this was not going to end well. So as she walked down the stairs, she looked like the kid from a Christmas story. She couldn't lower her arms at all. And every time she took a step like this, the little side zippers kept going down. But she was not going to admit that maybe she should have been a women's large. Maybe not. I don't know. We got down. We get on the stone bill. We have one to share. And we tear off into the woods. And this is like... This is like where grizzlies live. This is where like people die and they never hear from them again. We go, t- we have no idea, no maps. They're like, hey, you might want, I'm like, whatever, we're fine. Vroom, vroom, go flying. Within two minutes, I had tipped over on a lake uh, that was frozen because everything's frozen here. And uh, unfortunately for me, when we tipped over, I jumped off, leaving Angela on the back to just kind of fend for herself, <laughs> which is kind of a pattern for me. Anytime something I'm driving tips over, I jump out and leave the passenger to just perish or something. Uh, it's happened with boats, it's happened with golf carts, and now also snowmobiles. So I do drive a Jeep occasionally throughout my life, so just don't ever ride with me. Because if it rolls, I'm out and you're dead probably. Um, so we're driving around. We, we tipped it over. You know, I stand it back up. I'm like, oh, the engine's flooded. It should start right back up. But immediately she, see, she hears in the woods like a pack of snowmobile riders that were like hell's angels, but in snow. It's like Sons of Anarchy showed up, and they start circling around us on this leg. I'm sitting there like with my isotoner gloves and my gap jeans and my soaked boots five minutes in. And she's like, help us, please. My husband doesn't know how to drive this thing, which is sort of true. And the guy hops on it, starts around. He's like, it was just flooded. I'm like, sweet mercy, I just said that. So we're driving around, driving around. And this is where I'm telling you this story because I want you to know that I'm not a very good person a lot of times. And this was Valentine's Day. So we're driving around, we're going through, and like I'm driving, and she's behind me, and I hit this big jump, and I land, and she's mad, she's like, you're going too fast, so we switch. And then she's like evil Knievel on this thing, I mean seriously, and like it's so cold that my breath is taking the visor, and it's like, it's like this condensation's rising and falling, and I've got this little strip of like window I can kind of see out of. So I can't really see. I'm totally frozen. And then she hits this jump and just lands. I like crack my tailbone. She stops and I get off the snowmobile and I take the helmet and I just throw it into the woods and I start to actually swear at her, at the woods, at the snowmobile, at God for making snow, anything I could think of. So long story short, too late, I know. Um, We pull up like... Literally, a hundred yards away was like this little restaurant in the middle of the woods. I still think it was like some sort of angelic thing because I'm like, it's like the Ethiopian eunuch getting baptized in the desert. I'm like, this was a cheeseburger in the middle of the forest, and it was the greatest thing of our entire lives. So we hop on, we drive back, we get back to the place, and we turn the keys back, and they're like, dude, you have four and a half hours left on your rental. I'm like, just keep it. We don't care. We just barely survived. So that was our Valentine's Day of 2003, and so tonight we're doing a much, much lower key version of Valentine's Day. We're just going to drive in our vehicles home and just enjoy a night after all of this. But I love my wife, and what I didn't realize was that night, That season was the start of a long season for us. That season of infertility, 
season of heartbreak, a season of really surrender, a season of just lowliness. And God, by his grace, chose to give us a family. And our little girls, to me, they're miracles. So we adopted two little girls, and then a sister was born uh, for these two girls, not from us, but from the person we adopted them from. And we started praying about this third little child. And it wasn't working out for us to adopt. It wasn't working out for us to adopt her. And so, you know, we just waited and we just prayed and we just asked God to show us what he wanted us to do. And uh, this connects to where we're going tonight, I promise. Philippi and all that stuff and Paul and Romans. and Because there came a moment last year. Do you guys remember the series out of Easter last year called Bold? It was all about the Holy Spirit. Anyone remember that? Well, the first week I got done speaking and we were actually at Seaholm at the Birmingham campus. And my wife was crying in the front row, like really crying. And uh, it wasn't because I insulted her from the front or anything like that. She seemed especially moved. I'm like, surely it's not because of something I said. Like, what's, there's got to be something deeper going on. She said, I'll tell you later. So I met my wife and my two girls in the park for some lunch after. And she said in the middle of that message, I just, it was all about surrender. She's like, I just felt God telling me I needed to surrender, truly surrender my hopes and dreams for this little girl and just truly give it over to him. Like, I feel like I've never done that. She's like, the moment I gave up that idea of adopting this third child, I just laid it at God's feet and said, God, I'm done with it. As she's explaining that to me, I'm like, wow, that's incredible. All of a sudden, my phone rang and it was the birth mom reaching out to us for us to adopt that very child. So this is my family now. I've got pictures. And yes, I'm wearing the exact same outfit. Please don't ask any questions about this. I realized that just too late in the day. But those are my little girls. That's Lily, that's Harley, and that's London. Oh, man. And they're evidence to me of God's grace, God's faithfulness. But it's also a journey where we are broken. And where we were were humbled because there was nothing I could do to make that happen. But God had a plan for us. So we are in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I want to just lay a little groundwork for you tonight. Because when you look at Paul's life, it's very important as we study books to look at who is the audience that was attended for Paul as he was writing to him. When was it written? Where was he when he wrote it? Like, what had happened? And so, Philipp, the book of Philippians, scholars believe, was written around AD 62. And Paul was in, under, like, kind of Roman house prison rules. Like, he was in a house, but he was under house arrest, waiting to go before Caesar. Something else happened in AD 62 that if you know anything about Roman history or New Testament Bible stuff, a Caesar ascended to the throne, and this Caesar's name was Nero. That gives me shivers every time I say it because he was the most evil, just horrifying Caesar who led such a whole scale and, and full-on persecution of Christians. It was unbelievable. And so Paul is writing this letter to this group of Philippian believers. And, and as Dave and Cody and Steve Andrews have laid such amazing groundwork, you know how that church was started, how Paul was led by God to Macedonia, to Philippi within Macedonia. And as he's there... As he's there, he actually meets an incredible woman 
named Lydia, and then there's a, there's a Philippian jailer that he leads to Christ, and then there's a servant girl that he casts a demon out of, who then is also part of the start of this church. It's amazing. So he's not there for very long, but this church is growing, and it's expanding, and Paul is writing a letter from jail to a group of people that he absolutely loves. He loves them so much, and it's like he's in Rome, and he knows what's coming, It's AD 62. Nero has ascended to the throne. Persecution is about to get way worse than it already is. But what's interesting about Philippi is that Philippi, based on archaeological evidence and all the research that we do today, there wasn't really any evidence of a Jewish presence in the city of Philippi. You know, if you track Paul's journeys through the book of Acts, like anywhere he goes, he's got this group of Judaizers that chase him around and they persecute him and they try and get him beat up and they try and get him killed. Well, he gets to Philippi and there's none of that. There's not even a synagogue there. I mean, this is his most Gentile church of anything he did. There was literally no presence there that we can prove historically of the Jewish people. And so anyone that he's leading to Christ is coming from a purely pagan background. In fact, it says that Lydia was a God-fearer, which basically meant that that she was maybe worshiping the God of Israel, but she had not converted to Judaism. She was not following the law. She was just someone who worshiped the same God. And so as Paul is looking at these people and he's thinking about them, he writes this impassioned letter to them. But what's interesting is most of his epistles or letters that he writes, he's correcting doctrinal problems. He's reaching out saying, hey, you've been taught this, but this is what's true. In, In Philippians, he's not really correcting any doctrine. He's not defending himself against anyone in that town who's saying that he's teaching something false. It's more of a letter of inspiration to a group of people that he absolutely loves because he knows that trouble is coming. Philippi had a population of about 10,000 people or so in AD 62. Uh, About 85 to 90% of the world at this point was illiterate. And so when he wrote this letter, he wrote it in a style that was meant to be delivered by a skilled orator or a messenger or someone who could deliver it a certain way. So when he delivered a letter, he sent it with someone who would be able to actually speak in the right way and read it with the right intonation and emphases that he desired. Paul also knew that the Philippian church was in grave danger because the man that they were following, Jesus Christ, the religion that they were espousing and growing there was an exclusive religion. It's saying that Jesus Christ is Lord and no other. There is one God and nothing. And the Romans had a pantheon with about 24 different gods that everyone was worshiping. But the chief of their pantheon of gods was a man who became a god. Because the imperial cult was huge all throughout the Roman world. And so at this point, when Nero ascended to become Caesar, he didn't just take on that job. He wasn't just sworn in in front of a bunch of people taking the oath of office. When he became Caesar, they believed through rituals and other things that he actually became God in the flesh. In fact, when you read the New Testament and it talks about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a direct refutation of how they referred to Caesar. They would say, our Lord and Savior, Nero. So it's so beautiful to read the Bible that way because you realize it was absolutely going after that worldview. So how beautiful is it that the imperial cult that was so dominant at that time was all about a man who became a god. And yet Christianity, the follow of Jesus, was all about a god who became a man. 
So Caesar was all about being elevated, and Jesus was all about becoming nothing. And in that culture, that's not what you did. That's not what you did in that culture at all. All right, that was all background. Here we go. (laughs) Sorry about that. And there were snowmobiles in Philippi as well. That's how it all ties in. (laughs) All right, so I'm told that you guys stand up when we read this. Can we stand up together? Let's read Philippians 2, 1 through 5. And remember, this was written by Paul to be read out loud. So let's read this with feeling. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, sorry, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can be seated. See, that's the problem when you're mic'd and you're reading with everyone else. If you make a mistake, there's nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide. All right, so let's walk through this, uh, Philippians 2, verse 1. I just want to walk through this verse by verse as, as a beautiful picture of what they were challenged to do from Paul as they were getting ready to face incredible persecution. And I find interesting similarities as we step into it. Remember Jesus' last night on earth before he was betrayed, before he was whipped and beaten and then crucified. He spent hours upon hours in the upper room with his disciples. And what I love is that he shared like kind of this final instructions before everything changes. And I love that Jesus knew trouble was coming. In fact, he even said, in this world you will have trouble, John 16, 33. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. He knew what was coming. And he tells them a lot of powerful instructions for them to remember. We're going to get to that at the end. But I love, Paul loves this group of people, so he's giving them instructions before trouble comes. Jesus loved his disciples. He's giving them instructions before trouble comes. So Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now right away, here's what's interesting. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. What I love about this is you've got evidence of Paul's belief and our belief then in the Trinity. So you see three parts here in, in, at work. The encouragement in Christ. This word for, that we translate encouragement could also be translated comfort or consolation or even salvation from the original Greek. So if there's any salvation, comfort, encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, this, is, this love that we have is, is the word agape love, unconditional love. This is referring to the Father's love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And any participation in the Spirit. Participation. If you remember in Acts chapter 2 where it's describing how the early church operated, it talked about fellowship of the believers. And it used a particular Greek word called koinonia. You may have heard it before, you may have heard it in church or whatever, but that's the same word here, this, this idea of a shared participation or fellowship in the Spirit. In other words, this was not just about your individual experience with the Spirit of God. This was about a communal, community, church-wide sharing of the Spirit and any 
affection and sympathy. What I love here is he's saying, if there's any encouragement, which we know there is, if there's any comfort from love, which we know there is, any person, all these things are, yes, of course there are those things. And he's building on what was talked about last week in verse 27, where Paul said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he's saying, hey, when you live that way, therefore, here's how you live that way. With the comfort of Jesus, with the love of God the Father, and with participation in the Spirit of God. It's a beautiful demonstration of a triune God working together. It's a beautiful picture. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full, being in full accord, and of one mind. When he says, complete my joy, this is interesting because he's, he's appealing to their emotions. He's appealing to personal experience. He's saying to them, hey, complete my joy. I love you. I know you. Please complete it by living this way. It's a very personal, emotional, experiential appeal to the people. Even though he could have appealed to, hey, do the right thing because it's what God says. He's saying, complete my joy. I get joy out of you living this way. Reminds me a lot of when he talks in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 through 20, where he's talking about that church that he went to right after he left Philippi. He went right to, to Thessaloniki, and he's there, scholars believe, it talks in Acts chapter 16 and 17, that he was only there for three Sabbaths teaching. Some take that literally, say three consecutive weeks. Others say maybe six months or a year. No matter what, it was a short amount of time. And in those three teaching sessions and his work in the Agora marketplace as a tent maker, he built relationships and started a church in Thessaloniki. And this, and this group of people, he says, when he writes a letter to the, to the Thessalonians, he says, what is my joy? What gives me joy? You are my joy. You are my crown. Like you living for Jesus is my joy and my crown. That's what my life is all about. When you live for him, I get joy. It's the same idea he says here. Complete my joy by living this way. By having the same mind, the same love. So this idea of same mind, sometimes you're thinking, wow, is this like uniformity or is this unity? Is this sameness? What about individual liberty and creativity and uniqueness? How does this work in there? Well, it's, it's not that idea of squelching creativity. It's, it's to seek the same goal with a like mind. It's having the same goal, but it's working itself out through our personalities and through our differences and through our creativity. Paul, in his, in his book, 1 Corinthians, talks about the body and how we each have different roles to play. So the same guy's not going to say, hey, be the same when he's telling us we're all different. But he says we can be different as long as we have the same mind, the same goal, or moving in the same direction, same love within community. And it says having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Now this is interesting because he's really tapping into a teaching done by Aristotle at this time. And this teaching done by Aristotle was when he talks about deep friendships, he's saying the deepest friendships in your life are one where you almost are, you know, we talk about now as soulmates. We use that term. That came from this. That came from Aristotle's teaching and Paul talking about this idea of being shared entwined at the level of the soul. One soul. It's a deep, strong friendship where there's harmony and there's sharing. Now we move to the big crux of the whole passage here in verse 3. 
Look at Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. This idea of selfish ambition is the idea of putting yourself first in pursuit of power, prestige, possessions. And anyone who's been on that track before, where at all costs you're going to win, you're going to succeed, you've done whatever it took, stepped on whatever necks, hurt whatever family member, stayed late, got there early, took that job, whatever it was that you needed to do to get those things. Paul says that when you have selfish ambition, it leads to vain conceit. And the translation, the words that they translate, that we translate vain conceit, more literally translate to empty glory. I like that translation, don't you? Has anyone ever felt that way before? You get that thing you've been working so hard for your entire life, and it feels empty. It feels empty. I mean, famously on 60 Minutes, a bunch of years ago, Tom Brady, after winning his third Super Bowl ring at a very young age, sorry, Patriots fans, that's still a little soon to talk about that, but he won his third ring, and he's on, and he's on 60 Minutes, he's like, is this it? He just signed a $65 million contract. He was dating a supermodel. And he'd won three rings. And he's looking into the camera, living out every red-blooded American man's dream. And he says, is this it? Is this everything? That would be the definition of empty glory. Because everything he did, it didn't fulfill him the way he thought it would, the way that everyone thinks that would. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. That idea of empty glory is that idea of polishing the facade. But there's not anything on the inside. There's nothing to match the success of the outside on the inside. It's a a false illusion. But Paul offers a solution. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility. Now, for some, we think we're being humble when we're falsely modest or we put ourselves down. Say, oh, I'm no good at that. That's, that's not really what humility is because in some ways, you're still kind of self-focused when you do that. The idea of humility is, is, the, is the proper stance of a creature before its creator. Think about that. The stance of the creature before its creator. This idea of total dependence, total trusting. This idea of putting others first before us. And what's interesting about true humility as Paul offers it here and then he'll develop it through the example of Jesus is this picture of true humility is that you have to understand in Philippi, which at the time was designed to look like a mini Rome. It was run by Romans. In fact, it was 40% Roman, 60% Greek at this time, but the Romans had all the power and all the control. And a lot of the people who lived there were actually part of the 28th regiment of Roman soldiers were given these different tracts of land to dwell in. So it felt a lot like a mini Rome that culture carried over. And part of that culture was that they despised humility. It was not a virtue. It was not a good thing. It was something to be avoided. In fact, they talked about humility. They defined it as lowliness, a weakness, a lack of freedom or servility. Isn't it funny how these terms that they viewed so negatively became the very bedrock of the Christian faith? 
where Jesus uses these exact same words, and Paul does too. When I'm weak, then I am strong. Jesus says, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. All of these teachings were flipping upside down a worldview that was dominated at that time by saying that you got ahead by stepping on the lowest. And to show humility was to show weakness, and weakness was not to be tolerated. In fact, there was a class system that operated in the Roman culture at that point. And this class system was defined as you had the emperor, you had senators, you had the equestrian rank, and then you had sesterces rank. And each of those had a certain amount of money that you had to sort of demonstrate in your family to be a part of that social class. And so here's where it gets crazy is that Let's say for, for your kids to be part of the Cisterces rank, which meant a better life, associated with better people, better schools, better everything in this time. And let's say you had to have you had to have $100,000 per child in assets in order to qualify for that. This, this is what happened in Ephesus and other places. Let's say your family's net worth was 400000 So as a family, you were part of the equestrian class, but now your children... Are each four children are each going to get $100,000? And they're going to have just enough to stay in a high social class called Cisterces. And then you have a fifth child. What do you do? Because now none of your children are going to have the proper upbringing, the proper class. And so in Ephesus, among other cities, they would take this child and they would put it outside the city walls and let it just be picked up by the slave traders. This was so common that slavery became one of the dominant industries in Ephesus, Philippi, and other parts of the world because it was all threw off the class system. If you had an extra child, you gave it away because you couldn't risk your family standing. That's how strong this was. And imagine this message now being brought by Paul to this culture. In a world where they're preaching the emperor is God, he's saying, well, you know what? You're talking about a man who became a God. I'm talking about a God who became man. And he took on our sin and he took on our shame and he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to death on a Roman cross. Paul knew that the Christians in Philippi ran the risk of being considered superstitio, which was a term that meant unauthorized religion. It was dangerous, it led to persecution. Because they weren't playing ball with the other religions. They weren't saying, okay, well, we can be part of, we can be the 25th religion in your pantheon. They were saying, no, we believe in one God. And the rest are under him. Paul knew this trouble was coming, but he knew the solution was through humility. Look what he says in verse 6, or excuse me, in uh, Philippians 2, verse 4. Let each of you not only look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. This is true humility. This is putting others and communities' needs as surpassing my own. It's putting them ahead of my own and being aware. I, I love this idea of humility. It's being aware of both my weaknesses and my glory. We were made in the image of God, right? So there's a certain amount of glory that we have because we, we are reflecting His glory. So it's humility is being aware of who we are both our weaknesses and our strengths and operating in that. We're to seek the good of others. And this is the antidote to this selfish ambition and vainglory is to strive for true humility where we try to outserve each other. We try to outlove each other. 
we try to outlow each other. We try to put others' needs in front of our own. So much that it leads to this incredible unity. And Jesus knew what this would lead to. Because the people of Philippi weren't interested in the Christian theology that was happening. They weren't interested in your belief systems, in your systematic theology. They weren't, they weren't interested. What they were interested in is watching how you lived. And when you are um, around a watching world that's looking at us, watching this church, watching the church, and they see division, and they see rivalry, and they see selfish ambition, and they see empty glory being pursued... What message does that send to a watching world that doesn't really care what we believe? They care how we're living. They care how we're treating each other. And they're thinking, if, we, if you can't be unified in your beliefs, I don't want any part of it. And so Jesus in John chapter 17, these are some of his final words. They call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is at the end of a long passage of teaching. And Jesus in John 17 says this. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Let me pause there. He's, he's praying on behalf of his disciples, but he's saying, I'm not just praying for these 11 that were in the room at that point. He's saying, I'm praying for those that will believe in me through their message. Guess who that is? Us. Jesus was praying for us, the future church in this moment. And what's his prayer? His prayer is that the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus is saying the way the world's going to know that this is true is how the church loves each other. Bring them to unity, he says. Give them the humility to have a true unity among themselves so that the world can see that. And then they see the unity within his church. They will then believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And that's strong. That's a strong challenge. And when I think about that, I think about how, how do we do that? How do I do that? I battle pride. I battle doing the wrong thing. I battle Emotions. I battle sometimes selfish ambition and vain conceit. I don't always look to others before myself. And Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's saying we have the mind of Jesus. We're a new creation. Now Jesus Christ comes and lives in us. The old has gone. The new has come. I've been crucified with Christ, yet no longer I who live, but Jesus Christ who lives in me. He's saying we can do this because we now can have the mind of Jesus because of his work on the cross and his resurrection and his spirit dwelling within us. We can do this. We can strive for unity in this way because of Jesus. That's the challenge. That's the call tonight. But it begins with surrender. It begins with laying that thing down. It begins with knowing that trouble may be coming, as Paul told his Philippian believers, as Jesus told his disciples, trouble may be coming. And how do you stand in the midst of trouble? Unity. How did the persecuted church thrive amidst persecution? Unity. They stood together even until the end. And it was a beautiful picture of what real humility 
looks like. God, I pray this for us. I pray that this would be true. That we wouldn't seek after empty glory, that we wouldn't be chasing after power and prestige and possessions and all that goes with it, but that we would seek to use those things to advance your kingdom. We would see the resources you've given us. We'd see the talents you've given us, the glory that you've given to us, and we would use it for your glory and not our own. I pray for this church, God. I pray for this group of people that you would bring us to unity through humility and that we would put others' needs ahead of our own and that we would love each other the way that Jesus loved us. Now, guys, we worship you. I pray that our worship would be a surrender to you, that we would lay our lives at your feet and that you would be glorified by our singing and by our attitudes and by our commitment to you, God. We love you. We are here for you because of you. Now, God, send us out to live in perfect unity before a watching world. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for your life. It's in your name we ask it. Amen.
tonight you're not even sure how you're not even sure why and there's a lot of pain that you're going through right now there's a lot of things you're wrestling through as I think about that idea that that in the world it's all about ascension of ourselves and about becoming better and bigger and more powerful 
ultimately realized in a man becoming Caesar and they considered him God. And yet tonight we sing to and we worship the name of Jesus, whose name is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Everyone who thought they become God, every Caesar, everyone who came before him, they will bow at the name of Jesus. And when we give our lives to him, here's what's beautiful is that he understands what we're going through. He understands our pain. He's not high and above us and not understanding. He took on our skin. He took on our flesh. And then he took on our sin. He felt it and he died for it, paying the price so that we can be free so that we can serve others. That's what Jesus did. And we're about to sing a song in a moment that that ties so directly into a season in our lives that I have to tell you this. So in that season of infertility, in that season of just heartbreak and pain, we were trying all kinds of different routes, some very expensive, some, all of them heartbreaking. And I remember one day I was sitting in a chair. We lived in Rochester at the time. I was a young adults pastor in the area. And I had some giant headphones on. I love listening to worship music while I prepare messages. I've been listening to this set list all week for tonight while I got ready for this. And I was listening to a song we were going to sing that Sunday. And, and it was this next song called How He Loves. And the chorus just says, he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us so. And as I'm sitting there, I don't remember what I was preaching on. I just remember what I was preparing in this chair. And my wife called me. And on the other end of the line, she is sobbing. And I said, what's wrong? What happened? She goes, baby, it didn't work again. We're back to square one. Our latest attempt at having a baby had failed miserably, expensively, and devastatingly. And as she's explaining this to me, as I'm on the phone with my wife, heartbroken, she's crying, I'm crying. I had taken my headphones and just slid them off. I didn't even have time to turn off the song. And you know what I heard in the midst of that moment of my deepest, darkest, heart-rending pain? I heard that chorus. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. And I'm going, how is that true? If you love me, then why are you letting us suffer? If you love me, but I understand the love of God meets us in our deepest pain. The love of God finds us on the floor. It finds us in the cave. It never leaves us alone in our pain. And he comes to us and he loves us into our future. And he loves us and he draws so close to us. Psalm says that God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so as we sing this next song, wherever you may be tonight, whatever you're going through, just remember there is a God who knows you, who loves you, who chose you, and he is in this with you. And when we sing this out together, just remember no matter what you face, we are serving and in relationship with God who truly loves you no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. And we serve a God who doesn't tell us to go after empty glory. He tells us to go after his glory. And he takes our pain and he redeems it for his glory. And he takes our stories and he takes our ashes and he turns them into beautiful things. And so as we sing this next song, I would just ask you in this moment to surrender whatever it is you're carrying, to lay it down at the feet of the one who loves you more than anyone. And he understands your pain and he's with you in it. Let's sing this incredible anthem that will forever remind me of the unbelievable love of God.
beautiful night. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you so much. Wow. A friend of mine just released a book that said the downward ascent of power. And that image of God coming down. You know, man wanting to ascend and God coming down. What an image. And so this is what we're going to ask this week as you, as you prepare your heart starting today all the way through Easter. Uh, we would love to do a, just an, an, a you version reading together as a team. And you can do that by just coming. You can get, go on our app. You can go on Instagram. You can go on Facebook. You can find the app. You can go on you version and find it. There's actually, you can throw that uh, graphic up if you want. And we're going to actually try to do this together where we can actually go there and read every day and really prepare our hearts as we head into Easter, really humble ourselves. Philippians 2 is my life, one of my life verses. The whole idea that we would do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And as we go through this season, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go old school in my childhood, and I'm just going to give something up. I'm going to fast for something all the way until Easter. I'll, I'm, in, I'm, I'm inviting you into that journey. Is every time you want to actually, whatever you fast, every time you crave that, you realize what God has done for us. That we would actually be able to enter into his glory. It's a beautiful picture. So come with us. Uh, so thank you for being here. And we love being together. Love seeing your voices at the end. Wow. Just what a gift that is to me. And so thank you for that. Come back this weekend. I'm actually going to be out of town for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be suffering in California. Uh, so I'll be thinking a lot about you. Uh, but I'll be very happy. But I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, but thank you for tonight. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this gathering. Thank you for your love. As we go out, Lord, let us think of you. Let us prepare our hearts for what this season means. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.